Hello everyone, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux. Welcome to Last Week in the Church, the show rigorously devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you probably already know because, well, you know, they happened last week. Uh, first bit of news I've got for you this week is Habemus Vacationem. Basically, we have vacation is what that means in Latin. It's a fancy way of saying that I'm going to be off for the next two weeks. So, I, well, listen, I'm off all the time. What I mean is I won't be here for the next two weeks. So uh, the next time we see one another live and in full living color will be Monday, August 30th. Uh, but we will be sure to have all these stale news uh, at that time to bring to you in the same breathless fashion we do every week. Uh that means we need to go off with a bang here today. So here's what we've got for you this week. The Vatican's trial outside the trial heats up. A papal BFF is in the docks. Of patents and perils, the quest for justice amid the COVID pandemic. The Italian church's sweetheart deal gets just a little less sweet. And finally, of buildings and buoyancy, why a decline in religious architecture should have us all just a little bit worried. That's what we've got for you this week on the other side, so please stick around. All right, we begin this week with the Vatican's, what I have called, trial of the century. Uh, what Italians who are trying to be funny are calling it the uh, Last Judgment of Pope Francis in reference to the famous fresco by Michelangelo on the wall of the, or the, on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, in any event, uh, this is the trial uh, around this $400 million land deal in London that the Vatican's Secretary of State tried to pull off uh, and then went bad amid accusations of fraud, extortion, overpayment, various forms of shenanigans. The central defendant is, for the very first time in church history, a cardinal, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. This is the first time a cardinal has ever faced a criminal trial in the Vatican and the first time he's being judged by lay people. Uh, there are nine other defendants and three other corporate entities as all of this. Now, look, uh, in, in Vatican terms, this is like the Michael Jackson trial in the States, okay, or the OJ trial in the States. This is, like, from the point of view of criminal justice, the biggest thing that's ever happened. And so, like those other trials, which turned into three ring circuses, uh, there are actually several trials going on in once. There's actually the trial happening inside the courtroom that had its first hearing on uh, July 27th. It was kind of a marathon session of about seven hours. Then the judges deliberated for another hour and a half. So eight and a half hours all in, basically a full workday. Uh, then it was adjourned until early October. So that trial right now is kind of frozen in place. Then there's the trial behind the scenes, the skirmish going on between and among the various lawyers. All in on the defense side with the 13 different defendants there and different interested civil parties, there are about 30 lawyers for the defense. Okay? I mean, think about that. They could feel, they could have a soccer match 
Okay, they could field the 11 starting players on both sides and have plenty of people left over on the bench to come in as substitutes. I mean, it's a bevy, a cornucopia, a plethora, a pleroma of lawyers. And they are engaged in active skirmishing with the prosecutors and the courts over issues of discovery and procedure and jurisdiction. That stuff is certainly still going on. Uh, then out in full public view, there is the trial as it's being waged in the media. And there's also the water cooler trial, right? Because around Rome, it's hard to walk into an enoteca. That's the term here for a wine bar. Not that I spend all of my downtime in wine bars, I want you to know. But, you know, I've been known to dip in and out purely for reporting purposes. Uh, or coffee shops, restaurants, cabs, what have you. Everybody here has an opinion about this trial, and they're curious about what's going to happen. That chatter uh, is going on despite the hiatus. Uh, and we got a new development this week in the trial in the media with a sort of would-be sensational expose in the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. That's the most read daily newspaper in the country, has a kind of center-left editorial line which reported on an alleged secret dossier prepared by Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Peña Para, who is the Pope's sustituto, basically his chief of staff, which was allegedly submitted to uh, prosecutors in the London case uh, in April. Now, I'm, you will note the repeated uses of the word allegedly. Uh, the thing is, Republica did not provide any information about where they got this supposed dossier, nor how they were able to authenticate it. The Vatican, so far, as of this moment, has not yet commented uh, on whether it's authentic or not. And so we don't really know for sure. The leading hypothesis here in Rome, I can tell you, is that Peña Para himself leaked it to Republica. But we, we just don't know. And so uh, we don't know with, you know, metaphysical certainty whether this is legitimate. But in any event, what we do know is that Italy's leading daily newspaper published a report suggesting that in April, Peña Para had written to the prosecutors saying that inside the Secretary of State, the place he is allegedly in charge of, there was a corrupt mechanism of obfuscation, obfuscation, delay, denial, cover-up, all of which was intended to force superiors such as himself to make hasty decisions, basically capitulating to decisions that had already been made by a kind of shadowy network of a couple of people who had the power of the purse inside the Secretary of State and several kind of checkered uh, Italian financiers who were acting as external consultants and advisors. And Peña Para named Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlasca as the kind of face of this corrupt system of delay and denial, saying he met with Perlasca almost every day. Uh, Perlasca was in charge of the financial office in the Secretary of State. Peña Para said he would ask for explanations uh, about various transactions. Perlaska would either say, oh, I'll get back to you on that, and then never do it, or simply defend the, the transaction without offering anything by way of objective analysis. And in the end, Peña Para kind of paints Perlaska as 
bad guy number one. Now, what is interesting about all of this is that in April, at the time Peña Parra allegedly wrote this, he was also bad guy number one for the prosecutors. They were looking at him as, their, as a target for indictment. But in the meantime, Perlaska basically flipped. He, he turned informant and is now the star witness for the prosecution, not indicted himself, not facing any criminal charges. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas, he's like Henry Hill, right? He's the mobster who lived the life to the full until it all came crashing down and he got busted. And then he turned informant and got a deal for witness protection instead of going to jail. I mean, that's basically a Prolaska situation. It will be fascinating to see how much credibility the court eventually attaches to Prolaska's testimony, especially in light of this alleged dossier from Peña Parra, assuming it is real. Stay tuned. This is hardly going to be the last twist in what is likely to be the Vatican's big soap opera of the year. All right. A papal BFF is in the docks. This is Bishop Gustavo Zanchetta uh, of Argentina, who used to be in charge of a small diocese there until he was accused of various forms of sexual and financial misconduct. He was like a man without a country for a year and a half. He had to resign and he just kind of floated around until Pope Francis, who was personal friends with Zanchetta, allegedly, brought him to the Vatican and, of all things, gave him a kind of made-up job in OPSA, <laughs> which is like the Vatican Central Bank. It controls all its money. So it is still a kind of huge question mark. Why a bishop who'd been accused of financial misconduct would be given this special role in the Vatican in its money powerhouse? Actually, on the list of top five most enigmatic things Pope Francis has done from the start. Zanchetta is probably on there someplace. Anyway, so Zanchetta, even though he was facing criminal investigation in Argentina, was brought to the Vatican, you know, got this kind of, you know, sweetheart deal at, at OPSA and was doing fine. Then, apparently, because of a parallel ecclesiastical investigation, uh, it was announced he was being suspended from OPSA, and then so he was kind of floating around again for a while. And then, for reasons that no one could ever discern, Pope Francis restored him to his gig in OPSA, where apparently he is still going to work every day, although not, not this week, because this is Ferragosto in Italy, no one works this week, but in any event. Basically, he's in good standing here. But meanwhile, the criminal investigation unfolded uh, in Argentina. Uh, it was announced recently that he has been summoned for a criminal trial involving two charges of sexual abuse against minor seminarians, uh, which is going to commence in October. And we expect that Zanchetta is going to show up. His attorney has indicated that he's going to defend himself. We're going to see how that plays out. Uh, now, in itself, the criminal trial in Argentina is probably not going to answer the question as to, does Pope Francis know something we don't about this guy? I mean, is there some reason he keeps sticking with him despite all of these different pitfalls uh, in his story? You know, the, 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 the Argentine trial is not concerned with his relationship with Pope Francis. It's basically about whether he did or did not abuse these two young seminarians. But nevertheless, 
it's a question that is going to continue to hang over this papacy. And it's a question that both critics and fans of Pope Francis, to be quite honest with you, have a hard time answering. All right, perils of patents and the COVID situation. From the beginning, both the Vatican and the United States Conference of Bishops have been advocates of waivers of patents and copyrights and trademarks for the vaccines developed to treat COVID in order to get those vaccines into the hands of developing nations that can't afford to pay the patent fees so that they can produce and develop their own, their own vaccines on an emergency basis to achieve the kind of herd immunity that everybody agrees is necessary to, to get out of this pandemic. It, recently, the U.S. bishops led a charge, an ecumenical and interreligious charge in the United States, uh, organized a meeting with the U.S. Trade Commissioner, uh, who has indicated that she is receptive to this argument and plans to bring it before the World Trade Organization. The Biden administration has indicated it is also supportive uh, of a patent waiver. We'll see what happens when the WTO meets in the fall. In the meantime, some critics uh, inside and outside the Catholic world have made the argument that if there are no patents, uh, if there are no copyrights, if there are no trademarks, then pharmaceutical and biochemical companies are not going to invest their resources in developing vaccines if they don't think there's ever going to be a return on investment. You know, we saw an extraordinary push to get to the COVID vaccine. In part, that was because these companies wanted to be the company that put one of these vaccines on the market because there would be a huge return uh, on investment. In response, the bishops and the Vatican have said what we're advocating is a temporary waiver that at some point these patents will be reinstated. Now, whether that's after the gold rush is over is anybody's guess, but it's one of those instances where, on the one hand, uh, you know, your heart wants to say, well, of course, everybody needs access to the COVID vaccine. We should do whatever it takes to make sure poor countries can, can get it. Uh, your head says, on the other hand, you don't want to live in a world in which nobody uh, has any incentive to develop vaccines. And instead of nine months, it could take nine years or nine decades to get a vaccine to something like COVID-19. Fortunately, that's all above my pay grade, but it's something that I'm sure will continue to be debated. Next, the Italian church's sweetheart deal gets a little bit less sweet. This year, for the first time, the percentage of Italians who chose on their tax returns to devote a percentage of their income to charitable operations of the Catholic Church dipped below 30%. That's a historic low. Uh, it went from 31.8% last year to about 29.3% this year. And under the formula in Italian law, it's called the Otto per mille or eight per 1,000 formula. For every $1,000 euro in taxes an Italian pays, roughly eight. Uh, go to charitable activity, and taxpayers can choose which among a variety of authorized charitable entities their money will go to. One of them is the Catholic Church. So the net is uh, the Catholic Church is going to get a little less money this year. Now, don't cry for them. The Italian Bishops' Conference, or CHE, will still get north of 1 billion euro from the federal government this year. That's because there's a formula in the law. About 70% of Italians actually don't check any of those boxes. 
Their money, therefore, under the law, gets apportioned according to the choices of those who did check a box. 30% of Italians, that's 12 million people, still did check the Catholic Church. That's going to be more than a billion euro for the Italian bishops' conference. So they're not broke. But it is an indication that slowly but surely, even in uber-Catholic Italy, the, the hold that the Catholic Church has uh, on the public and on their pocketbook may be slowly eroding. Finally this week of buildings and buoyancy, I was struck recently when the New York Times style section carried a list of the 25 most important buildings of the post-war period, a rundown all around the world of the 25 most important architectural achievements since World War II. And only two of them, two, ladies and gentlemen, had anything to do with the religious faith, a Dominican convent in France and a mosque in Bangladesh. Other than that, these were all purely secular structures. That's about 8%, therefore, had something to do with religion. Now, for a term of comparison, I went to Architectural Digest, kind of the Bible uh, of the field, and looked up their rundown of the 50 most iconic buildings of all time in any epic. Of those 50, 23 were clearly religious, and another five were arguably religious, such as the Potat Palace in Tibet. Yeah, it was a seat of government and a fortress, but it was built for the Dalai Lama, who Tibetans consider divine, and he is the center of their religious universe. That's a religious structure. Okay? In other words, historically, almost 60% of the great buildings are religious. Over the last 70 years, that dropped precipitously to 8%. What that signals to me, it's like a warning, a warning light flashing on your dashboard. It tells you the creative capacity of religion, the capacity of religion to create culture, is running dangerously low. In part, that's because in the post-war period, and in, in really beginning in 1978 with the Iranian Revolution, global, revolu global religion went into a kind of defensive and reactionary period. I mean, jihadism, intended to defend a kind of pure vision of Islam, is the dictionary definition of uncreative. It's destructive. The nationalist, radical currents of Hinduism uh, in India that are currently backed by the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi are another example of a largely defensive and insular form of religious expression. The parallels to all that in Christianity scarcely need to be laid out. But let me just point to the recent sort of contretemps over the Latin Mass as an example of a religious community that is relitigating re its past rather than creatively engaging its present. And look, I, I realize this is not sexy news. This is not like a Vatican trial with a cast of characters out of Goodfellas, you know? This is not like whether Joe Biden is going to be denied communion by the U.S. bishops. This is uninteresting, and it requires taking a long-term perspective, because whatever the fix to this is, we're not going to have it tomorrow. But it is, nevertheless, one of those long-term movements of history that 100 years from now, 500 years from now, when all the rest of this is forgotten, this is the kind of thing we will look back at as a crucial 
turning point. And so, ladies and gentlemen, is the kind of thing probably we ought to talk about a little bit more often if we can steal our attention away from the, the passing fancies of the present. All right, that's our show for this week. As I said, we will see you again two weeks hence, Monday, August 30th. You can find full coverage of everything on the Crux site, cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. If you like Last Week in the Church, this show, this space we share every Monday, please give us a like, give us a retweet, give us a thumbs up, use the social media platform of your choice, and make disciples of all the nations. For the next fortnight, stay safe. Stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed time, and we will talk to you again two Mondays from today.